0: So far, that America, the leader of Israel today, or the nations of Israel, stands as the great whore of Babylon, uh, the great whore of Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18. And we see that that is being carried out here in Jeremiah 50. Let's pick it up down in verse 22. Uh, I left off in verse 24, but to get the context again, a sound of battle is in the land, and of great destruction. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? Uh, how has Babylon become a desolation among the nations? I was going to bring up here, I guess I left it at my chair, it doesn't really matter, a, an article out of the latest Newsweek, September 1st, just received yesterday. It was an essay written in there, I forget the fellow's name, but he was showing how the United States is getting stretched so thin that it is very difficult for us to be a policeman of the whole earth. And he pointed out how a fellow uh, by the name of Kennedy, a historian, back in the 80's had said that America has overextended, uh, that it is an empire in decline. There's just no way we could do what we were attempting to do. And more recently the man has said I guess I got that wrong, uh, because we've sought, fought several wars since then, and essentially won them, and even now we're in a great conflict uh, in Iraq. That conflict, as you know, if you watch the news, is not over with by any means. Uh, we are being attacked over there almost daily, and our soldiers being killed in the same Magazine. It says that there are 167,500 of our troops over there now trying to maintain peace in a country of people who absolutely hate us. And it is a rallying point now for terrorists of all kinds to come into Iraq and to harass us. But there is a point at which we will be stretched so thin we cannot any longer maintain And perhaps we're stretching ourselves then on purpose uh, if those who have designs of bringing this country down have anything to do with it. But he went on in that article that I first referred to and said that, uh, that Great Britain and America are the only countries on earth today who can wage war and win. I question Great Britain to some degree there, although I do have some pretty strong weapons at their disposal. But it's usually Great Britain in coalition with America who can win a war. So when you boil it really down, there's only one nation on earth today who can wage war and win. And we wage war wherever, whenever, and upon whomever we decide to wage war and destroy them to whatever degree we decide to destroy them. It isn't a question of win or lose, it's a question of what degree we intend to destroy them. And certainly with nuclear capacity, we could completely annihilate any nation on earth, take out all their major cities. I think that considering the military might of the entities on earth today, as we near the very end of this age, it has to be one of the strongest definitions of who the end time Babylon is. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? No matter how strong we are, we are going to be cut asunder, broken, and destroyed. Verse 24 I, God speaking here, have laid a snare. Uh, for you, and you also are taken, O Babylon, and you were not aware that it is going to come as a sudden destruction. Most of the people in America today and the other countries of Israel, wherever they are around the earth, are going to be taken by surprise. How could it possibly happen? And yet it says in an hour, in a moment, suddenly, and all the prophecies that you read, it's not something that we're going to see a great build up for that we can see coming, like a thunder shower coming across the land. Where you can watch it from far off and see the lightning and thunder, and then as it gets nearer and nearer, you begin to realize there's going to be a storm. This is something that will take us suddenly in a moment, much as to the general public's view at least, the attacks on the World Trade Center came suddenly, just out of the blue, suddenly the planes started crashing into the towers. It's going to take the nation by surprise. It should not take us by surprise. We're reading these scriptures. We're seeing what is going to happen before it ever occurs. It is going to happen right here in our land, because God has laid a snare for us. And why? You were found and also caught because you have striven against the eternal. We strive in every facet of our culture to live opposite of God's ways. Even those who are so-called Christians in our so-called Christian nation which just banned having the Ten Commandments as a monument in our courts even this nation which claims Christianity is striving against God. We may not even realize it for the most part but everything we do is contrary to God's way of life. Everything in our culture is against God. We can sit up in our self-righteousness I suppose and look back at Nimrod and, and explain that he was a hunter against the eternal. We can go into the Hebrew and we can understand that Nimrod was against God and that his mother Semiramis was against God and that they became gods themselves to the rest of mankind. And we can explain that they are still worshipped to this day in many forms in many countries. And I have shown already in this series that they are worshipped in this country as Madonna and Child. We can explain that, and yet we can still be a part of that same culture which is against the eternal and not realize that we ourselves still strive against him. Our human nature, our carnality, the pulls of the flesh, the downward jerking that we have against becoming godly. Everything in us goes the other direction by nature. We are not striving for God as a country, and I wonder to what degree that still infects you and me. I know we are trying to be different in the world, and yet in so many ways, the likeness is very similar. We have a lot of work to do. I do not want to be found and caught. Striving against the eternal. If that's what our nation, this people, is doing, we must not be found doing the same thing. We must be found living differently, thinking differently, acting differently. There should be a vast contrast, not just a little difference between us and the world. There should be a great gulf An incredible contrast between us and the world. How much different are we from the world? Is it a a difference that they can recognize easily? Is it a right difference that even we recognize all that much? I think we ought to spend some time contemplating that, thinking about it. How much really are we different? Will we lie in a pinch to save face, to try to protect our view of ourselves or our image? That's the way the world does it. Or can we just humbly say, I'm sorry. Guess I made a mistake. I find, even working with God's people today, it is very, very rare for us to be humble and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. We find all kinds of ways to justify ourselves and our position. That seems maybe like a very simple illustration, but it's one of the hardest things. If you ever try correcting people, how much resistance do you get? How much human pride, ego, and vanity do you usually find? An awful lot. Most people are basically uncorrectable. They will not admit, they will not admit their error, but find a way to justify it. So they not only lie to themselves, they lie to you, and ultimately they lie to God. And we all do it because of pride and vanity. Protect that image. Are we striving against God in that area? And there are many others. I don't want to get into that. Let's move on. Let's show what God is going to do. God is going to destroy our nation. He is going to cause this to come upon us. The Eternal has opened his armory and has brought forth the weapons of his indignation. Verse 25. For this is the work of the Eternal God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Now, this is not the land that the ancient Chaldeans lived in. It's the day it's the land the modern Babylonians, the modern Chaldeans live in, who are governed over by a Babylonian government. God is going to destroy. Come against her from the utmost border upon her storehouses. Who has storehouses today? Where do you find a land that has more than it can possibly eat? Is it China? Is it Great Britain? Is it Japan? Is it Germany? Russia? No? That's the only place that that can possibly fit is here. Is it the Catholic Church? We're still defining here, you know. Catholic Church got more than they can possibly eat. Storehouse is full. There are places in this land you can go and see silo after silo after silo, full of grain. I've seen in Wisconsin buildings half a mile long, just judging, uh, not stepping it off, but by the, judging by the looks of the length of them, full of butter and cheese. Just butter and cheese the U.S. government has stacked up. Building after building after building of it. We do have storehouses full. So it says come against them, open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps and destroy her utterly let nothing of her be left. Total, utter destruction is coming on this Babylon. Slay all her bullocks. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their visitation. So it's speaking a prophecy against Babylon here. Now notice it says, verse 28, The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Remember what I've been saying about how the book of Revelation is a conflict between the church and the world? That is really all that the Old Testament prophecies, I mean the New Testament prophecies are about other than the utter destruction of Israel, which in this uh, context is Babylon. Babylon will be destroyed. Some will escape out of it. And it tells you here who they are. The voice of them that flee and escape, this is not speaking of coming out spiritually or not thinking Babylonian thoughts. This is a physical destruction coming upon this country. And people who escape from this country physically is what this is talking about. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion. They escape and go to a place called Zion. And they declare in Zion... A certain message. The vengeance of the Lord our God. The vengeance of his temple. What is his temple today? Ever since Christ was hung on that stake, and the early New Testament church began shortly thereafter, his temple has been the body of Christ. The church of God. The people. Let's not get this confused. There is no physical temple required in New Testament theology. The Jews do not have to build a physical temple in Jerusalem. The church does not have to build a physical temple. Do you see anywhere in the pages of the New Testament the church of God building a temple? Can someone show me a verse? Not in there, is it? Yet I can show you dozens of instances where it talks about the people of God as the temple of God. Herbert Armstrong had that very clear. The building is not a church, or the church is not the building. The church is the people. And he saw very clearly that the Protestants have that wrong. When they want to go to church, they're speaking of the building. They're not speaking of meeting with God's people. I've heard months and months ago and more recently that we're looking upon that building we're putting out in Arizona as the temple. I corrected somebody on that nearly a year ago. That is not the temple of God. We are the temple of God. That is a hall that the temple will meet in. It is a multi-purpose building which can be used for a lot of different things to serve the people of God. It is not the temple. Does Satan care anything about destroying a physical building? Or who who does he want to destroy? Us. He wants to destroy the temple of God. There's no temple made with hands that God is interested in. He is interested in us. Us. says well we shouldn't play basketball in that building or other such activities why not that's not a holy building it's a building where we will meet to worship god i'll tell you what i can play basketball with somebody for an hour or two and tell you a whole lot more about them and their character and their attitudes than i can from sitting and talking to them or listening to them for 10 hours what they really are comes out very quickly in competition and sports. We need to get some things straight in our minds as to what the temple is. The temple flees from the beast and from Satan. A building gets destroyed. The vengeance of his temples, his people, whom Will the world kill here at the end? We already read that in Matthew 24. They're going to come after and destroy us if they possibly can. In Revelation 12, when the church flees, Satan sends an army to destroy the people. Doesn't care that much about the building. You think a building's going to be changed in the moment, the twinkling of an eye, when Christ returns in the spirit? I really rather doubt it. We had a wonderful, fine building in Pasadena. It still stands, but the temple has fallen. The building didn't mean anything. Maybe God didn't even care enough about the building to cause it to be destroyed. There have been people expecting it to be destroyed ever since pagan doctrine got offered on the altar there. It still stands there. It doesn't do bad or good, doesn't do good. It's just a building. In fact, they'd like to take it down now, but they don't know how. God was concerned about his temple and our lackadaisical approach and attitude. We are what he scattered, divided, and destroyed, not that physical building. No, I'm not saying it won't get shaken down. It may When God starts shaking Southern California and New York and Chicago and Houston, it may get shaken down, or they may take it down. But the attitude of the building is not what concerned God. It was the attitude of his people, the temple, that he was concerned about and still is. So let's be sure we get this straight. I think I will take a a little bit of a sidetrack here. I've made reference to it, and I did do a sermon on it some time back, but I want to take maybe a five or ten minutes thumbnail sketch of the book of Revelation to make sure we have this clearly in mind in terms of the context now of Jeremiah 50, along with the other scriptures we've been examining. Revelation first of all, was addressed to John by Christ himself. And What did John then do with that message? Revelation 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches. And then he goes on to describe the the golden candlesticks and so on and shows that these are the seven churches of God in verse 20 of that chapter. So the whole of chapter 1 is an explanation of whom this book is to be addressed. It was to be addressed to the church of God. Now there are a lot of people out here around the world who might read the book of Revelation and they think that it's there for them. They may be heathens. They may be nominal Protestants. They may be this or they may be that. But it was not written to them. It was written to the church of God, which at that time was on a mail route of seven of them. And then chapters 2 and 3 are explicit messages to different parts of that church. I did an article or a series of articles several years ago in a magazine showing that the seven churches exist at the end, that they are not just nose to tail through history, but there is so much internal evidence in chapters two and three and throughout the rest of the Bible for that matter to show that all seven are in existence at the end. So not only was this written as a book to the church, it is a book written to the end time church. It is a book written specifically to us. That almost gives me chills to think about. The God, so long ago, wrote this book at the end of the age of the early New Testament church. Late 90s AD, the book of Revelation was written. The Revelation was given It wasn't given in 30, 31, 32, 33 A.D. at the beginning of the New Testament church. It did not apply to them. It wasn't for them. It was written after they had already gone into apostasy and disappeared for the most part. And John was writing to a very, very few who were left in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And by the time he wrote the book of Revelation, and it would have had time to have gotten disseminated throughout the mediterranean area area most people would never have read it most were gone dead or in apostasy and it wasn't addressed to them it was addressed to people who would come later right at the end so god had you and me specifically in mind when he both wrote the book of revelation it is a message entirely to us First chapter, second chapter, third chapter. Chapter 4, he describes the throne of God. So he introduces this to the church, describes the church, describes the problems in the church, tells every era of the church or every part of the church, to be more correct really in the end time, to overcome if they want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Then he describes the throne of God. So... He addresses the church, and the first relationship he gets clear is that we need a relationship with God. That's what chapter 4 is all about. The church in relationship to God and his glory. He directs the attention of the churches to God in heaven. Chapter 5 continues the same thing and tells us that we can be kings and priests and rulers with Christ in the world tomorrow. So, two things he does. He tells us what we are, tells us who we are, tells us what our relationship with the Father in Heaven ought to be, and then he begins to address the trouble that will come. That's in chapter 6, the seven seals. And we find, if you read through there, I'm not going to take the time to do it, I did it before in another sermon, but... uh, the emphasis here is the problems that come upon the church. You can compare that with Matthew 24 and how they will then take us and persecute us and kill us. And here it talks about that in verse 9, the fifth seal particularly coming upon the church to those who have white robes (coughs) and how our fellow servants will betray us to the other servants ties in directly with Matthew 24. So all through here, even though he mentions the seals and how there will be famine and trouble and earthquakes and so on, uh, and ties it in with the church, on the earth he ties it in directly with the church. We are mentioned all the way through here. Then you get into chapter uh, seven, and he talks about the tribes of Israel speaking spiritually. Thank you. And it talks about the 144,000, the servants of God being sealed. That's the church. We know from chapter 14 that the firstfruits are the 144,000, chapter 14, verse 4. And then you see the seventh seal in chapter 8, the seven trumpets. And what does that culminate in? The resurrection of the church. So the whole emphasis here is the relationship between God and the church and what happens to it in relationship to the world. This book is not as much about the world as the world might think, the kingdoms of this world. The inner relationship here is between God and the church and the effect that the world has on the church if you see what I'm saying. You get to chapter uh, 11, well, the the seventh trump in in chapter 10, and uh, the mystery of God being finished, the resurrection of God's people. Then in chapter 11, they have the two witnesses who are the leaders of the end time church, (laughs) and who preached to the whole world ultimately and a witness of the temple of God against the world. We'll tie that in in a moment when we get back to Jeremiah 50. <coughs> then in chapter 12, what does the church do? It pleads from persecution. That's what the whole chapter is about, basically. And then you see finally in chapter 13, uh, two beasts who persecute the church. The whole thing is between the church and the world at this point. Get the relationship with God right, chapters 4 and 5, and then you're going to face what the world has to offer and they will all be turned against God's people. And then you go into chapter 14. Again, it talks about the 144,000 and about Babylon falling and making war against the saints and so on. And then chapters 15 and 16 talk about the plagues, and 16:15 is an allusion to the uh, Laodicean era. Behold I, behold, I come as a thief, blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Final warning to anyone who is in a Laodicean attitude, clear back in Revelation 16. That theme <clears throat> is picked up there. Then in chapter 17 we see the judgment of Babylon, which we have been examining and trying to define who Babylon is. And then, lo and behold, we find the church is involved, come out of her, my people. Wherever Babylon is, God's people will be involved in it and have to come out of it. That's in chapter 18. Then in chapter 19, it talks about war and trouble and Christ returning, but it talks about the wife making herself ready, the bride becoming ready to face Christ in the marry Him. Here again, the theme of the church remains strong. Chapter 20, the sequence of the resurrections, and shows the preeminence and the positive side of being in the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are they that are in that. That is the one that we have opportunity to be in. Chapter 21, it talks about Christ and his bride returning to the earth to rule a thousand years uh, with Christ and the new Jerusalem, which I firmly believe now comes at the beginning of the millennium, and then chapter 22 is a summary of the whole thing. So all through this book, the theme is the church and God, our relationship with God, and then our relationship with the world and what they try to do to us. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Now let's go back to Jeremiah 50. To understand here then, this prophecy in Jeremiah is talking about the same Babylon that Revelation 18 is. And we were in verse 28. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. We are going to be persecuted. Some of us are going to be killed, probably before the place of safety ever occurs. A remnant will be left behind, the main body of the church, in fact, and have to go through the tribulation. Only a remnant is saved out of it. But I expect that we will be persecuted before that ever happens. So God will show his vengeance. He will take his faithful ones, out of this destruction that is coming. And they will be able to declare in Zion their glory and thankfulness to God. Hopefully they will not murmur and complain. If they are murmurers and complainers, I think they will be left behind. Negativism, negativism, complaining and murmuring are not things God desires. He does not want those things in us. And God changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What did he do to those who murmured and complained in the deserts, Brethren, he destroyed them all. Even Moses, for a fit of temper, was not allowed to go in. Maybe we should think about that a great deal. We are to go to Zion to declare the vengeance of God and thankfulness for his deliverance. But he is not going to take people who are complainers, whiners, negative, down, gossips, backbiters, are going to be left behind to learn thankfulness. We heard about that in the sermonette. Thankful to God for everything He has given us. We're going to sing songs of deliverance and sing the song of Moses. God just simply will not have murmurs and complainers there. He won't have it in His kingdom. If the kingdom is going to be just like we have today, why bother? Is this concept so deep that we can't understand it? Do we still harbor grudges, attitudes about people, and we simply will not turn loose? And we still expect to be there? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be forgiven. But if we are not merciful, we will be shown no mercy. God says that not in parable, not in suggestion. He says it in very clear words. You will be judged as you judge others. Most will not even try to flee Babylon. Do we grasp that? Anciently, when Judah was turned loose from Babylon and told they could go back to Jerusalem, the vast majority, probably over 90%, stayed in Babylon. They had grown accustomed to it. They didn't want to move. They didn't want to change. They wanted things to go on as they were. They had developed the Talmud a Babylonian book to follow. Which had incorporated much, much paganism, far more than that had even in the time of Christ. Or, no, they still had it, I should say. That was before he came. And he hated their doctrine. Hated it. So right here in the middle of a Calls the destruction of Babylon, he talks about God's people, his temple, fleeing from Babylon, getting away. It is going to be destroyed. Now I know some who are going to cling to it till the last second. They've already stated that they plan to do that. I am going to hang on to this world and its ways until I absolutely have to turn loose and flee to God's old ways, to use their attitude. I really don't want to be like God. I don't want to follow the ways of God. So I'll cling to this world, and I will hang on to it until I absolutely cannot hang on any longer, and then I'll flee for my life. God is my last resort. Do you think God is going to be too inclined to save someone who has that kind of attitude? I think not. If we're not putting God first now, and we're showing by the way that we're living, that we really don't want to live his way, but if it means saving our hide, we will go his way, we don't have much chance. We're not convinced, we're not convicted that God's way is actually the best way to live. We like this world too much. And every time I or any other minister starts telling us about the things that Babylon has to offer that are not good for us, boy, do we resist. We have things there that we like. It isn't a matter of whether we like them, brethren. It's that they're wrong. God hates them. People say, well, I kind of like this, or I kind of like that. Well, I used to like Christmas trees, too. And you can say, well, we put Christ in it, as many Protestants do. We understand, we've read the two Babylon's, we know how the Christmas tree started. That it was an upright phallic symbol of Nimrod's manhood springing up overnight after he died. The erection that would never go away, in other words. But, we put Christ in it. I think he would resist that. And Jeremiah takes 10, makes it very clear. Christmas trees are pretty, and they put all kinds of little baubles and things on it to decorate it. And they think that it represents Christ being born. Not Nimrod coming to life overnight and being resurrected. Whether we like something or not has nothing to do with whether it's right or wrong. I like some wrong things. I like some right things by nature. You have particular things you like that came from Babylon. It's because you or your wife or your husband like them. doesn't make them right. They're still wrong. They're still just as Babylonian, still just as pagan, if that's where they originated. Anyway, God is angry with our culture and our society. How angry are we with it? I'll tell you how angry he is with it. Call together the archers against Babylon. All you that bend the bow, anybody that can string an arrow, he says. Camp against it round about. Gather yourselves all around Babylon. Anyone that can shoot an arrow. Point a gun or fly an airplane in modern parlance. Let none thereof escape. God says, get them all if you possibly can. Recompense her according to her work according to all that she has done due to her. Rape her, pillage her, destroy her, kill her. That's what she has done around the world. For she has been proud against the eternal, against the Holy One of Israel. We call ourselves a God-fearing nation, but we don't fear God. That's obvious because we don't do anything he says. And we have been proud of our way. We are proud of our schools and their evolutionary teaching. Our whole teaching system in this entire nation is constructed to destroy any vestiges of worship of God by teaching evolution from kindergarten through twelfth grade through college. Our whole educational system, brethren, is against God. We took prayer out of the schools. We took the name of God out of the schools. And we injected atheism, evolution. She is proud against the Lord. We would rather depend upon our own military than we had upon God for protection. That was a problem in ancient Israel, and it is a problem that has not gone away. We are proud against God. We are proud of our Marines, the few, the proud, the Marines. We are proud of all phases of our military. We look to it for protection, not to God. We are against God in that area. We are against nature. We are against everything God started. We abort millions of babies every year. We're murderers. It is against nature. It is against God to murder babies by the millions. But we do it in this Christian nation. Therefore shall her young men fall in the streets, and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Eternal. Our military upon which we have depended is not going to be very proud anymore. It's going to all be destroyed. Behold, I am against you, O you most proud. What is the proudest nation on earth? We covered that, I think, in Revelation 18. We're living in it. O oh, you most proud, says the Lord God of hosts. Uh, the Jewish translation says, Thou most arrogant. That's the way they translate that. For your day is come, the time that I will visit you. And the most arrogant or most proud shall stumble and fall, and none shall raise him up. And it will kindle a fire in his cities. That reminds you, doesn't it, of the language of Revelation 18? How the smoke of her torment Will go up, and I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it shall be a devour all round about him. Thus says the Lord of hosts: The children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together. Interesting, isn't it? This end-time Babylon is one to be oppressing both Israel and Judah. Now, in the original captivity, remember historically, Israel went into captivity through the Assyrians. They weren't even around when Babylon came to destroy Jerusalem. Babylon only took the Jews captive. But here it mentions Israel and Judah together. So this is a prophecy for the end time that does not completely fit the picture of the first captivity. One occurred a couple hundred years apart from the other. But here they are pressed together. There are more Jews in America than there are in Israel by far. More Jews scattered throughout Israel than there are in the nation of Israel today by far. We were oppressed together and all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. This culture, this society, this Babylonian empire that we're living in today will not turn us loose, Brethren, Isaiah 52 talks about how it is a yoke upon our neck, and they we're laying down in the street being walked on by it. He tells us to sit up to break those bonds. We'll get into that more a little later on. But all through this prophecy against Babylon, it keeps coming back to this theme, that God's people are oppressed among them. I get an argument every once in a while that, well, that 70 years didn't have anything to do with today. Well, why is it in Zechariah then, pray tell? And in Jeremiah, and for sure in Daniel, a book that is absolutely sealed until the end. Zechariah and Daniel are not end-time books, along with Revelation. I don't know which books are. That 70 years is upon us as a church. We have been in the captivity of Babylon now for almost 70 years. From the time the church was started in Babylon, this era of it, the end time church. We have been held captive by this culture and this society ever since. You don't think so. Just try divorcing. Hard to get rid of. You're living right in the middle of it. They're defiling the very food you eat, genetically altering them and mixing lizards with corn and sheep with uh, tomatoes and whatever they want to mix, and telling you that that's good for you to eat. Yes, we are captive today. Much as we would like to think we are the land of the free and the home of the brave, we are very much in slavery. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. Who is he going to redeem? Is he going to save Israel? No. Most of physical Israel is going to be destroyed because they are a part of Babylon. It's their religion. It's their way of thinking. The only ones he's going to save out are his faithful remnant of the church. He is our redeemer. Now, he'll redeem Israel in a millennium. That's a different story. We're talking about the destruction of this country and the nations of Israel here at the end. He shall thoroughly plead their cause that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. He'll redeem us, but he's going to destroy everyone else. A sword is upon the Chaldeans, says the Eternal, and upon the inhabitants of Babylon, and upon her princes and upon her wise men. A sword is upon the liars, and they shall dote. A sword is upon her mighty men, and they shall be dismayed. A sword is upon their horses and upon their chariots, all of our military, (laughs) and upon upon all the mingled people that are in the midst of her. Are we a melting pot of the nations? Have we been called that for generations now? Yes, we have. Are we becoming more of a melting pot every day? We're being besieged with people coming in from all over the world, from India, from the Orient from South America and Mexico anywhere you want to name what nation is probably mingled more than any other on earth Just another evidence piled upon top of the rest that we are indeed the Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18 verse 38 a drought is upon her waters and they shall be dried up are so we having droughts, in the West now is in the fifth year of droughts, right here where we're living. We have altern- alternating droughts and floods, but the effect is the same. Crops are destroyed by either one, and famine is a result, ultimately. For it is a land of gra- graven images, and they are mad upon their idols. We have all kinds of religious images, political images, entertainment images, music, images, all kinds of things that we worship instead of worshiping God. What you give time and attention to is what you worship, okay? That is your idol. Entertaining the self with those things becomes the idol because we are our own number one idol for the most part. Please the self. Therefore the wild beast of the desert with the wild beast of the island shall dwell there. And the owl shall dwell therein, and it shall be no more inhabited forever, for neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and the neighbor cities thereof, says the Eternal, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell therein. This is going to be a complete destruction. Behold, the people shall come from the north, and a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. Now if you study the maps of the Middle East, during the times of these uh, ancient empires. You had Israel as the focus of the, the Holy Land. And then above that you had the Kingdom of Babylon upon the Tigris, Euphrates. And just to the north of that you had Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. And just to the north and somewhat to the east of that you had the Medes and the Persians. The Babylonian Empire was actually very small and included finally the Holy Land, and then the Assyrians had a little bit bigger empire who were a little further north, and then the Medes and Persians, when their empire came to the fore, were a little bit bigger than the other two ever were. So you had all kinds of Gentile kingdoms to the north of the Holy Land, and they whipped up on the Israelites from time to time, depending upon Israel's sin and God's Punishment upon them. So, if the Assyrian is to destroy Israel, the Assyrian was also there surrounding Babylon. But it does talk about a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth, all around the world. It is not just one empire in the end time. The people from all over the world are going to come in, into the coalition against America. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and will not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride upon horses. Everyone put in array like a man to the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report of them, and his hands waxed feeble. Anguish took hold of him, and pangs as of a woman in travail. So our leadership... At some point, we'll see it coming, maybe just before it happens, and become like an old woman. The populace as a whole probably will not even see it until it happens, just as in 9 one when the government knew about it before it ever happened, but the people didn't. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the swelling of Jordan to the habitation of the strong. But I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? And who will appoint me the time? And who is that shepherd that will stand before me? God is saying he is the one who is controlling all of this. So no one else can stand in his place. He is God. And what he says will happen is going to happen. Therefore, hear you the counsel of the Eternal that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has purposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Now, who's to take heed? We are. We're the only ones who will even read this and begin to take heed. And most of us will not take heed. Most of the church will not take heed. God says, I'm going to make this happen. Who can say that I won't? Who can say when it will happen? He says, I am in charge. So take heed. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. It isn't going to be any of our great leaders that draw us out. The least of the flock will do it. Surely he shall make their habitation desolate with them. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth is moved and the cry is heard among the nations. If Liberia were to disappear today, who would care? What if they destroyed the borders and started another country there, like they do so often in French equatorial Africa? Wouldn't make a bit of difference. Wouldn't be a ripple, would it? What would happen in the world if America was suddenly destroyed? Would that make a ripple? Better believe it. The cry will be heard among the nations. That sounds, sounds just like Revelation 18. All right, let's finish chapter 51 today. I'll hurry. I, I want to get on to some other things and not spend more time with this. Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon and against him that dwell in the midst of them that rise up against me, a destroying wind. And I will send to Babylon fanners that shall fan her and shall empty her land. Great big fans, let's say, who just blow everything away. For in the day of trouble they shall be against her roundabout, against him that bends, let the archer bend his bow, and against him that lifts himself up in his brigandine, and spare ye not her young men, destroy you utterly all her hosts. Our military is going down. Thus the flame, the flame shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans, and they that are thrust through in her streets. Now notice again what he includes here in verse 5. For Israel has not been forsaken, nor Judah, of his God. God is going to destroy Babylon because he has not forgotten Israel. Follow the thought? Israel is in the captivity of Babylon at the end. And God will not forget his people. So he will destroy the Babylonian culture that enslaves us, but he will destroy us as Israelites because we have forgotten our God and followed Baal. So the Babylonian culture that we have devised will go away, but so will we. For Israel has not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. So in the destruction of Babylon, the people of Israel who are full of sin also are punished. You cannot separate Babylon from Israel. They are implying together, as I said, inseparably in these scriptures. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Now he goes to the Revelation uh, language. Verse 7, Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hands that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. That's the exact same language you read in Revelation 18. So that prophecy, that revelation, that vision that John had was the fulfillment of Jeremiah 50 and 51. Exact same thing. Nothing different. All the nations have drunk our wine. Doesn't fit the Catholic Church, only South America, some of Europe, and a little bit of America. That's about the extent of the Catholic influence. Verse 8, Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. How for her? Take balm for her pain. If so be, she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Now that's spoken from Jeremiah's perspective as an Israelite, as a writer of this book. Now we, most of us who will hear this tape in the church, live in America, the head of Babylon. And we love our country, just like anybody else loves their country. And we don't want to see this country destroyed, do we? It's an emotional thing. I've lived here all my life. I've visited many, many, many countries around the world. And I didn't feel at home in any of them the way I feel at home here. There's always a feeling of... I'm home when the wheels touch down in this land. I don't get that feeling anywhere else. This is home to me. This is the land I grew up in. This is where I played in Little League and with Boy Scouts, like a good little Babylonian. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Another place Jeremiah says, don't even pray for this people they will not repent don't waste your breath but my emotion is I would like to see our country repent I would like to see us repent we would have healed Babylon but she is not healed forsake her and let us go everyone into his own country For her judgment reaches into heaven and is lifted up even to the skies. We have to forsake this society, this culture. We have to get away from it. We'll examine that in more detail later on. And what it means and what significance it has for us. But we have people here from all countries too. And he's telling them, you might as well just go home. You thought that America... This modern Babylon was the place to go. <laughs> I'm going to destroy it. You better get out of there. Go to your own country. For her judgment has reached into heaven, has lifted up even to the skies. The eternal has brought forth our righteousness. Who's it speaking to? Is there any one righteous other than the church? True righteousness? There are a lot of religionists, but no righteousness. And the righteousness level in the church has not been what God wanted us to be, and that's why he scattered us and divided us. The eternal have brought forth our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. God is going to deliver his faithful remnant. And they will declare his works. What he has done. How he has delivered. Remember how ancient Israel sung songs when they crossed the Red Sea. About the deliverance of God. We'll do the same thing. He's going to take us and let us declare his works in Zion. Make bright the arrows, gather the shields. The eternal has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for his device is against Babylon to destroy it. Now that literally, historically happened. It was the Medes and the Persians who took over from Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar in the Babylonian Empire. It will be a conglomeration of Gentile nations here at the end. Because it is the vengeance of the eternal, the vengeance of his temple. He brings it back to that. It's not just the vengeance of physical Israel. It is the vengeance of God's temple. In other words, the same thing that we see in Revelation we see here in Jeremiah. This is a confrontation against spiritual Israel in the world. Physical Israel will be destroyed around us. And by the grace of God, we will escape. And the vengeance is not just for the end time, it certainly includes that, and it's primarily speaking of that because the book of Revelation is an end time book. But even it mentions that the blood cries out from the ground of those who have died for God in the past. Many, many people, like Isaiah perhaps, who was martyred, and Paul and Peter and James and others who died for what they believed. Their blood cries out from the ground. But God says the vengeance will not be completed until the end. They will not be resurrected, will not be in the kingdom of God until we who suffer at the end have told our story. So the vengeance against Babylon goes all the way back to its beginnings with the Tower of Babel. And really, with Adam and Eve, with Satan goes all the way back. But the vengeance that God exacts comes at the end. That's when he destroys that whole system. Set up the standard upon the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. Because you can put your watchmen up. You can be ready as much as you want. There's not going to be any good. For the eternal has both revised and done that which he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you that dwell upon many waters, abundant in treasures, your end is come. Which country has the most physical waters of any nation on earth? When you combine the Great Lakes, Lake Okeechobee and various other freshwater lakes and streams, America has by far more water, Canada and America combined, and Canada is just a part of Ephraim and Manasseh. Far more water than any other countries on Earth. And Waters is peoples. We have far greater influence on more peoples than any other nation. Compare the Catholic Church and its influence upon millions of people and the United States and its influence upon millions of people. There's, there's no comparison. We influence Asia, Europe, South America, Africa, anywhere you go in the world, American influence is seen. They have Coca-Cola anywhere you go. They have American movies and programs and news anywhere you go. You don't see that with Catholicism. That great harlot of revelation is not the Catholic Church. It is the leader of Israel today, America. I firmly believe that now. Your end has come in the measure of your covetousness. What do we do as a people? Our whole way of life is based upon materialism and covetousness. He finds us beautifully here. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself, saying, Surely I will fill you with men as with caterpillars, and they shall lift up a shout against you. He has made the earth by his power, he has established the world by his wisdom, and has stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When God comes against us, it's all over, brethren. All the nations on earth today fear us. But when God turns them on us, they will lose their fear, and they're going to come after us. Verse 16, when he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings with rain and brings forth the wind out of his treasures. Every man is brutish by his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there's no breath in them. The gods of this world will mean nothing when God chooses to destroy our culture and society and every part of it. Their vanity, the work of errors, in the time of their visitation they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Why would he bring that in there again? if Israel didn't have anything to do with Babylon, it would be out of context, wouldn't fit anything, but they are intertwined. You are my battle axe and weapons of war, for with you will I break in pieces the nations, and with you will I destroy kingdoms, and with you will I break in pieces the horse and his rider, and with you will I break in pieces the chariot and his rider. With you also will I break in pieces man and woman, and with you will I break in pieces old and young, and with you will I break in pieces the young man and the maid. You know what this is probably talking about? The church. That part of Israel which will have the power and influence of God because the two witnesses will go up against this world and destroy whatever God wants destroyed. They will not be able to stand against spiritual misery. Yes, we will be persecuted. Some will die. God will take the faithful remnant out and then he is going to turn plagues and blood and all manner of destruction upon this world when he gives power to his two witnesses. They will represent Jacob in the end time. And the whole world We'll hate them, but we'll tremble before them. Verse 24, And I will render unto Babylon, and all the inhabitants of Chaldea, all their evil that they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Eternal. They're going to come against the church. They're going to come against, I think, we're going to have persecution from our own government. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, says the Eternal, which destroys all the earth. He's going to destroy Babylon first, then he's going to turn his anger on the rest of the world. And I will stretch out my hand upon you and roll you down from the rocks and will make you a burnt mountain. Haven't we always anticipated that the United States and Britain and Israel would be destroyed first? Haven't we always perceived that, at least in our traditional understanding, that Germany, with a combination of nine other nations in Europe, would come and destroy the Amer- America, and that would start World War III? have we always said that the Germans would not make the same mistake they made the first two world wars? This time they would attack America first, that America would be the first to fall? Now, I don't know that we I adhere completely to the strictness of our traditional view, and we'll get to that more later on. But I think we perceive correctly that America would fall first this round, this time. And that seems to be the key, that the beast will destroy the woman first. Then the beast will have preeminence for 42 months. Verse 27, set up a standard in the land, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations against her, call together against her the kingdoms of Ararat, many and Ashkenaz, uh appoint a captain against her, cause the horses to come up as the rough caterpillars and so on. Uh, all kinds of kings are coming against Babylon. Verse thirty, the mighty men of Babylon have forborne to fight. They've remained in their holes. They're they're gonna stay at the base. They're not even gonna come out and fight. Their might has failed. They became as women. They have burned her dwelling places, her bars are broken. One post shall run to meet another and one messenger to meet another to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken at one end. In other words, from one end of the land to the other, reports of destruction are going to come in, from Seattle, from L.A., from Miami, from Houston, everywhere around the land, messengers will be running back and forth saying, we are destroyed. And that the passages are stopped. we speaking of the interstate system, the way we passage, our goods and our foods, and the reeds they have burned with fire and the men of war are affrighted. Our whole military is going to be scared spitless. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her yet a little while and the time of her harvest shall come. See, this ties in with the captivity of Judah originally and how the Medes and the Persians came and destroyed the Babylonian Empire, and then the Medes and the Persians were the ones who turned the Jews loose. So the release of the church from the grip of Babylon and the fall of Babylon come in one breath, historically. And I think we're going to see that here at the end as well. But this prophecy includes both Israel and Judah, not just Judah as it was historically. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, verse 34, has devoured me, he has crushed me, he has made me an empty vessel, he has swallowed me up like a dragon, he has filled his belly with my delicates, and he has cast me out. The violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon, shall the inhabitant of Zion say, and my blood upon the inhabitants of Chaldea shall Jerusalem say. I think it is going to be Babylon, America, who persecutes the church. I think that says it right there. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you, and I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. And he goes on and talks about some of the things that will happen to her. Uh, Verse 41, again, by definition, says, How is Shishak taken? How is the praise of the whole earth surprised? Is the Catholic Church the praise of the whole earth? (coughs) I don't think so. America's the praise of the whole earth. We're the one that people want to come to. The American dream, not the Catholic dream or the Japanese dream. It's the American dream. This is where the mingled peoples come. We're the praise of the whole earth. The envy of the whole earth. The hate of the whole earth, because envy brings hate, the product of it. How has Babylon become an astonishment among the nations? The sea has come up upon Babylon, the peoples of the earth. She is covered with a multitude of the waves thereof. The Cities destroyed. Verse forty-four. And I will punish Baal in Babylon, and I will bring forth out of his mouth that which he has swallowed up, and the nations shall not flow together any more unto him. Yea, the wall of Babylon shall fall. This is the nation that all nations flow to right now. Not any other. Then he tells his people, my people, who are his people at the end? Now he's divorced Israel, remember. Christ discredited the Jews and said he'd give all authority to the church we've gone through that. So his people, God's people now, are the spiritual Jews, the church. My people, my church, go you out of the midst of her and deliver you every man his soul from the fierce anger of the Lord. And lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land, a rumor shall both come one year, and after that, in another year, shall come a rumor, a rumor, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. We had rumors in the land in 1999, didn't we? We had rumors of all kinds of devastation and of our vulnerability with the uh, Y2K bug. Credible rumors all over the airwaves, all over the internet, anywhere you look. Rumors everywhere. Nothing happened, did it? I just read a report yesterday in fact, where it said that the New World Order people didn't have everything in ready and they were prim- in readiness and were primarily afraid of Americans and their private gun collection. And that for reasons perhaps known only to them, they decided to put that thing off until late 2003 or 2004, and that now it is imminent. we heard incredible rumors in 1999, and now I'm reading other rumors. Now are these the rumors this is talking about? I don't know. Just threw that out for what it's worth. That was something that came off the internet showing how they're working on absolute mind control of our people. Therefore, behold, the days that come, that I will do judgment upon the graven images of Babylon, and her whole land shall be confounded, and all her slain shall fall in the midst of her. (coughs) Then the heaven and the earth, and all that is therein, shall sing for Babylon. For the spoiler shall come to her from the north, says Eternal, as Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall. So at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. You that have escaped the sword, go away. Stand not still. Remember the eternal afar off and let Jerusalem come into your mind. We are confounded because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces. For strangers are come into the sanctuary of the Lord's house. Here again, the emphasis is upon the relationship of the church to God and what happens in Babylon. And where is the church? It's in America, for the most part, 90-plus percent of it. This has to be enacted where the church is. Have strangers come into the sanctuary of the Lord's house? Absolute pagan believers? Just in the latest worldwide uh, journal, they had an article showing that Joseph Pikach now is telling all the congregations that they must quit kowtowing to Saturday keepers and everyone must now worship on Sunday. That is the push. No longer going to tolerate those who would divide. So in the physical nation, We okay homosexual and lesbian relationships, and we take the Ten Commandments out, and within the church, the sign between God and his people is totally being removed. Are these symbolic of a sudden destruction that is not too far off? Makes you wonder. He's talking to the church when he says, go away, stand not still. Don't be caught in this destruction that is coming on our country. Get away. Aren't we confounded? Aren't we dealing with paganism daily in God's church? Wherefore, behold, the days come, says the eternal, and I will do judgment upon her graven images, and throughout all her land the wounded shall groan. Though Babylon should mount up to heaven, We think we're the greatest thing that has ever existed on earth. And as a nation, as an empire, we are. We just are. And though she should fortify the height of her strength, yet from me shall spoilers come to her, says the Eternal. A sound of a cry comes from Babylon and great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans, because the Eternal has spoiled Babylon and destroyed out of her the great voice. Is that the media? The ones that broadcast to the world how wonderful we are. Her waves do roar like great waters. The noise of their voice is uttered. Verse 58 talks about the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The great military is destroyed. So absolute destruction coming upon our people Israel and their Babylonian captivity. Verse 59, the word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded, uh, Syriai, the son of Neriah, the son of Maaseah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, into Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And this, Saraiah, was a quiet prince. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all those words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Saraiah, When you come to Babylon, and you shall see, and shall read all these words, Then shall you say, O God, you have spoken against this place, to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, for that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be, when you have made an end of reading this book, that you shall bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of Euphrates, and you shall say, say, Thus shall Babylon sink and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary thus far, are the words of Jeremiah. It is going to happen. It's going to sink like a rock thrown in the Euphrates River. Now, was this speaking just of the ancient city of Babylon on the banks of the Euphrates? If so, why? 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 Would it be brought up in the book of Revelation and described in the same words that Jeremiah uses when Revelation is just and only an end-time book? This is an end-time prophecy about our peoples today. Our nation, along with the rest of Israel, brethren, are going to be destroyed in the times of the Gentiles are coming, and they will walk all over Israel for 42 months. We'll get to that later on. I can hardly see how we could define the great horror of Revelation as anything else but our nation and our peoples today. Especially when God, in Ezekiel 16 and other places, Hosea, calls Israel a great whore and a mother of harlots in his own words. And then brings it out in the book of Revelation at the end time. I believe we can define America, along with the rest of Israel, as the great harlot and mother of harlots of Revelation. And once that is defined, we can then go and define some other beasts and how they might look here at the end time as well. But this one is important to understand at the beginning, to know what is going to happen to our peoples, and then later we're going to get into some more things about the church and that relationship between us and God, and us in this world. So next we'll likely go to some definitions of some beasts that we find apart from this woman who is destroyed by a beast.